Well, now, honey, we've been over this and over this, and there's what's right, and there's what's right, and never the twain shall meet. Those were the brilliant words of H.I. McDonough, who is, of course, from the classic film Raising Arizona. Hi, everybody. This is Daisha. This is Classical Classroom. And you are about to listen to part one of a two-part series about the music of the Coen Brothers films. So when I sat down with my coworker, Craig Cohen, to record this episode, it was originally going to be one episode, but... It was such an epic conversation that we actually had to break it up into two. So anyway, this first episode covers 1984 through 1994. Um, that's blood simple to the Hudsucker proxy. And you know, in addition to amazing music, the Coen Brothers films are also known for great characters and for being totally quotable with lines like... Hey, these blow up in a funny shapes at all? Well, no, unless round is funny. And... You're not just telling us what we want to hear. No, sir, no way. Because we just want to hear the truth. Well, then I guess I am telling you what you want to hear. Boy, didn't we just tell you not to do that? Yes, sir. Okay, then. And who could forget... Son, you got a panty on your head. You drive fast. So it would be super obvious for us to just turn this intro into a funny quote-a-thon. But... We're above such audio parlor tricks, and instead we'll just say... You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hive. I got more than I can handle. And leave it there. Anyway, remember to subscribe to, rate us and review us on iTunes, and uh, enjoy the episode. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. It's how to be classical music rock stars, because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally, I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music voice. I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Craig Cohen. Craig is the host of Houston Public Media's daily public affairs program, Houston Matters. By the way, Houston Public Media is the station that Classical Classroom was born from. Uh, Craig has also hosted classical music programs on three stations, one of which he was the uh, program director at. Uh, He was a film critic on a TV show called Critics' Choice. He also hosted a TV show called iZone, which introduced independent films. Most importantly for our purposes today, though, from what I understand, Craig, you've interviewed a Muppet Oh, I've interviewed multiple Muppets. Which Muppet? Well, the ultimate Muppet, Kermit the Frog. What? Intrepid reporter. Oh, my God. Yes. um, A number of years ago on Sesame Street, Uh one of their storylines involved a hurricane coming through town. And I got wind of that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so I called up Sesame Workshop. And I said, is there any chance – I was hosting a, a, a – I was a local host of Morning Edition in central Illinois, and uh-huh. I wanted to interview Kermit. I wanted him to be our on-site reporter telling us about this hurricane. Uh, and they put me in touch with 
the gentleman who we will say is Kermit's companion, right? Yeah. Uh, and he said, yeah, let's do it. And so I wound up recording two interviews with Kermit, one as the hurricane was bearing down on uh-huh. Sesame Street, and then one in the aftermath, in which point Big Bird's nest was destroyed. No. Yes. And the, the rest of the street, they all came together to help him rebuild. Oh, <laughs> that's brilliant it was it was a blast oh my god that's i had no idea we we would have been talking about this for the last couple of years we've <laughs> yeah. been working together. so but seriously we're going to be talking about something today that we um that we both love that's not muppets uh the music of the coen brothers movies well i just love the movies first of all i'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of, of uh, joel and ethan coen's films which are so at we, times, should, we should say there's no relation right? no I'm, I'm, no. Ass, I'm assuming they, different they, spelling different spelling okay have no connection whatsoever to them that i'm aware of no yeah so so tell us a little bit about Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Cohen brothers. Well, they are they really are a movie making team in that while one is listed as the writer and another one is the d- director or producer in the credits of all of their films, the truth is uh, anybody that has worked with them, they really are like this collaborative two-headed beast <laughs> on set. Yeah. Uh, and they just come up with brilliant ways of bringing you into a period of time a, a film concept, a structure, yeah. a something. You just kind of, as you start to watch a film, you're like, that's quintessentially a Coen Brothers film. And yet each one of them, each one of their films has uh, unique settings and characters and situations. But th- there is something about it, the way they they photograph, the way they yeah. tell a story that, that just draws you in. Well, and the music is such a like huge part of that. And, yeah. and surprisingly to me, like there's a lot of classical music in these movies. So we should start from the beginning with regard to the music. And I think talk about it's Carter Burwell, who's right. the guy who scores most of their films, And right? he is a 20th and 21st century composer primarily of film scores. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you might say this is maybe slightly further afield from classical, but you know what? You've talked about John Williams and Star Wars, and, exactly. and I am totally on board with that. Yeah. So if you're okay with that, let's talk I'm about totally Carter Burwell. Totally okay with that, yeah. So this is a, a, a native of New York uh, who studied animation and computers at Harvard, uh, but was moonlighting as a keyboardist in punk bands. And that's where the Coen brothers found him wow. uh, while they were preparing to shoot their first film, uh, Blood Simple, back in 1984. Mm-hmm. So they hired him to score the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, there are going to be folks who have not not seen some of the films that we're going to talk about. And I... You know, I'm always worried about the whole spoiler thing, so I don't want to give too much away about yeah. any of these films because the less said, the better. Definitely. Particularly what comes to the, the kind of stories these guys tell. But let's let's start with IMDb's description of Blood Simple because it's just it's hysterical. Uh, it says, a rich but jealous man hires a private investigator to kill his cheating wife and her new man, but when blood is involved, nothing is simple. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Somebody got paid to write that. Absolutely, <laughs> that's great. But this is right out of the gate—a terrific film. Great performances by Francis McDormand, Dan Hedaya, who was uh, Nick Tortelli on Cheers. Oh yeah. Uh, M. Emmett Walsh, Dickie Dunn from Slapshot, one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, John Lithgow's dad in Harry and the Hendersons, if you oh, remember nice, that. Yeah. Uh, 
This was probably Walsh's most celebrated role. Uh, he he plays a really creepy guy, and he does it so well. Uh, Burwell's music, though, let's get to that. Carter Burwell establishes that this is film noir, mm. establishes that atmosphere, even though the film takes place in a contemporary setting in 1984. He uses piano and synthesizers to sort of set the mood, and then there's this subtle percussion that is just sort of constant that creates this sense of forward momentum towards some sort of impending doom. Mm, let's hear that. almost like a ticking clock yeah. in the background. And it's just like maybe a little simple yeah, touch. Yeah, I was tuning into that too. I was smiling because you can you can hear that this is from the 80s. Yes. Even though, even though they kind of like, the Coen brothers are really good at making films that are sort of ageless. In a, in a lot of ways, like you can, you can definitely hear that it's, synthesizer. And 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 eighty four because I feel like this could have been in Terminator. <laughs> totally, yes, <laughs> yeah. All right, so so this is Carter Burwell's first his first foray with 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 yes. Joel and Ethan Cohen, um, and and again yeah. he hadn't done film scores yeah. to date. This was his. Like I said, they found him in. A, a punk band and said, hey, you want to try doing this? That's so random. Yeah. I really love the story of like how that went down. Um, so, okay. So this is, this is Blood Simple. And this is, I, I saw this one a long time ago, but I remember how just sort of dark and ominous everything felt. And so much of film. it is, is set in this seedy bar and it's yeah. just like a, a dive out in the middle of nowhere and everything yeah. about it just says, these are skeevy people yeah. doing skeevy things, and this is not going to end well for anybody we like. And you know, with this music, somebody had a mullet in that film. <laughs> yes. Almost definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so where do we go next? What, what's, the, what's the next? Uh... Let's, let's move now to 1987 okay. and Raising Arizona. Oh, yes. A yes, great. Yes. I have to say this about Raising Arizona. First mm. time I saw this film, I did not like it. <gasps> I. I couldn't get into it. Yeah. Then I thought, well, let me give it another shot. And I watched it again, and I kind of chuckled. Yeah. Then I watched it a third time, and I laughed out loud. <laughs> and then subsequent times, I find it now a hysterical film. Yes, it's true. It, like, it gets funnier with age. Yes. I was just talking to another one of our coworkers today about this, and we started just you know, throwing out lines from the film. And there are so many. The entire film is just like... One-liners. Oh, just, yeah. Just like quotable one-liners. Well, I'm going to give you one, okay. which is they got more than they can handle, which is kind of the whole setup here. <laughs> yeah. Holly Hunter's a cop. Nicholas Cage is a criminal. They fall in love, and they steal one of the Arizona's quintuplets, uh, saying that the Arizona's, who are this well-to-do couple, yeah. they got more than they can handle. 
This is a modern slapstick mm-hmm. comedy. It's bizarre. It's goofy. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's that great sequence where they they rob a store and then they have to go back and pick up the huggies that are lying That's in right. the road. Yes. So how do you portray modern slapstick musically? Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Burwell, Ethan Cohen was concerned that this film might not be, quote, groovy enough for him. <laughs> But Burwell, and this is on his website, carterburwell.com, which you should totally check out if you dig his music, uh, says he doesn't have any affinity for country western music, which is what they were looking for here. Uh, But what he did was he he found this Polish singer named, and I'm going to butcher this name, Mieczysław Litwinski. I feel like that's really convincing. Okay. I believe it. Thank you. Uh, And this this guy could yodel really, really well. (laughs) And he figured, okay, well, you got to start with a yodeler, right? Mm -hmm. That guy can yodel. Yeah. He also found a banjo player who may or may not have been, according to his website, one of the Coen brothers' optometrists. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then he found a couple of percussionists, and he sort of threw a band together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they sort of do this improvised score that uses a lot of household objects to make music. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, They use vacuum cleaner hoses, they use jars and hubcaps, and it sort of creates this unique and goofy sound that really fits the wackiness yeah, of the Yeah, it's a lot like a, 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 an American in Paris. He, you know, he employed the, the use of the horns and stuff like that, yeah. you know, just actually bringing the sounds of what was going on into the music. Oh, right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's so great because it's interesting that, like, you know, this guy comes from, from punk music, obviously not a country music fan. Right. And, like, this is his take on it. Like, this is... <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's a compliment or an insult or what right. it is, but it works for the movie it because totally it, it, it establishes this is going to be out of left field. Whatever it is yeah. you're going to see is way, way off the beaten path. Yeah, yeah, it really does sort of sort of um, lend it that bizarro world feel. that, And, like, this movie, I feel like, is such a departure from Blood Simple. Uh, and, I mean, you could kind of see the the style that was going to emerge from the Coen brothers a little bit. You could see like nuggets of it in that in Blood Simple. In Raising Arizona, you really start to see that sort of stylized yeah. Coen brothers thing where it's, you know, it is a slapstick. It is but there's like this sort of dark cloud hanging over the movie too. Well, it, it, you know, they seem to create a lot of films about lovable losers. Yeah. You know, people that have just have no direction, aren't really, or are letting the winds, the fates take them wherever they'll go for better or worse. Yeah. In some cases for much, much worse. And we'll get to some examples of that. Yeah. Oh my God. Listen to that. I can't believe I've never noticed that this turns into Beethoven's Ninth. That's crazy. Yeah, th- this music is great because even if it's not all that precise, mm-hmm. that that works. Yeah. Uh, it also helps that it's got to be goofy because you've got Nicolas Cage on screen. With his crazy hair. The hair and the mustache. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. 
Oh my god. If you guys haven't seen this movie, go watch it, like Craig said, at least three times. Yes, because the first time you may not get on board with it. Yeah. Repeated viewings, it's it's worth it. It's amazing. Okay, so where are we going next? We got a lot to fit in here. Yeah, let's go to 1990 and Miller's Crossing. This is another fine film that, that a lot of people haven't seen. Uh, with Gabriel Byrne as the sort of hero slash anti-hero. Albert Finney's a mob boss. John Turturro begs for his life better than anyone you'll ever see on screen. This great sequence where he's he's in the woods and he's looking up at Gabriel Byrne and he says, Look in your heart! Look in your heart! Oh! <laughs> it's very moody. And, and this film is all about the mob. It's about yeah. betrayal. It's... That that part reminds me a little bit of Blood Simple, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a period piece, and so Burwell goes with a full orchestral score with this one, aiming for what he calls big and sentimental and lush. Okay, let's hear some of that. the synthesizers here yes yeah but you can hear it kind of it builds and it grows and there's a warmth Mm -hmm. which is really interesting because it's a very violent film right yeah i remember seeing it lots of lots of blood but it it works yeah look at your heart (laughs) look at your heart i can totally see john jadero saying that I love the big swell yeah. in the music. Sort of takes you, you, you know you're back in time. Yeah. You, you, you have this sense of this has got to be early, mid-20th century. Uh-huh. There are, there's an, an immigrant culture, yeah. a new America, mm-hmm. but it's also very violent and very dark, but also very warm. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting dichotomy. There. Yeah, totally. All right. While, so- while we're talking about the, the early mid 20th century mm-hmm. um, that's a period I, I know this we're talking about a stretch of 30 or 40 years here but kind of from the 1930s to the 1960s seems to be right in the Coen Brothers wheelhouse a mm-hmm. lot of their films end up in that period of time yeah it's, I wonder why I mean I guess that kind of makes sense because there's so much cultural change taking place and, and and one end of the spectrum is when they were kids, and probably at the other end is when their parents were kids. That's yeah. usually when a lot of people, I think, if, if auteurs that are telling stories have a tendency to fixate either on, I think, what their own experience is, or they want to try and understand what their parents went yeah, through. Yeah, you go with what you know yeah. or are trying to know. And I think – but I think what's so interesting about their films is that – I said that they were timeless, but then I was thinking, well, but they're all like Miller's Crossing, like um, O Brother, Where Art Thou? Like the they're sort of 
almost caricaturizing the time periods that they're、mm. set in. So they're very much using that. But I guess what I mean by being timeless. They're sort of telling stories in a Homeric way, like they're, they're, they're parables. You know, they, a lot of exactly, what they do are parables.、Yeah. They、uh, they resort to, they use archetypes a lot、yes. in their films. Their their characters are are usually symbolic of something, and so they're telling these tales that are set. In a time period, but honestly, they could be taken out and you know set in any like it. It could be the Iliad, you know. It could be、right. the Odyssey. Well, in fact, right, one、yeah. of them is, and,、yeah. and we will get to that one. Oh yes, I can't、uh, wait. But let's <laughs> let, let me quickly mention、uh, Barton Fink from 1991.、Okay. Yeah, it's a, another period piece that sort of encapsulated the Hollywood system of the early 1940s.、Mm. You had、uh, John Turturro sporting a look that only J.J. Abrams could love. <laughs> The the sort of Jufro with the、yes. black round glasses. <laughs> totally, he's a writer who needs to hammer out his scripts.、Uh, he's seeking something deep in a shallow world,、uh-huh. and he's put up in the hotel from hell. Yeah,、uh, there's no other way to describe it. He has a neighbor, John Goodman, who shows up in all of, a lot of the Coen Brothers films,、mm-hmm. uh, who is has this friendly, outgoing nature about him, but that sort of belies what. Again, I don't want to give away too much, but let's characterize him as a sort of fallen angel of a character.、Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he's the devil; he's not the devil. That's not what I mean. But he's sort of revealed over time to be a far more shocking character.、Yeah. There's something about his character that unfolds that either you see coming and you're fascinated by, or you don't see coming at all and you're really fascinated by.、Yeah. Um, by the end. There is this sort of transition from you think you're in a wacky Hollywood send up kind of a film to what I might almost characterize as horror. Yeah,、uh, which that that is so the Coen Brothers that 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 sort of move from light to dark and back again so easily that that kind of is jarring as as、uh, it very much keeps you on a on your toes as a viewer. And there's a, a piece that、uh, Carter Burwell writes in this called "Barton in Flames."、Mm. Okay.、Uh, and we'll just leave the title where it is. Okay.、Uh, you hear those dissonant notes. That's、mm-hmm. anytime you want to kind of demonstrate something visually askew. Uh huh. You can show it musically too.、Uh-huh. Something's going wrong, and and in this film,、yeah. it starts like you feel like you know you're on solid footing, and you just it, it falls away thematically all the way through this film.、Mm. It sounds like they've gotten fancy too. They're using an actual orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. Let's skip ahead now to 1994 and the Hudsucker Proxy, which is one of my. Maybe my favorite of the Coen Brothers films, and I, I think I'm in a distinct minority on that front. I think there's sort of mixed、uh, critical response to this film. This I've only seen parts of, so you're going to be inter- introducing me to some new stuff. All right. Well, then let me start by just the the basic plot of this.、Okay. It's a fantasy film. It's set in 1955, presented in a classic Hollywood standard film style.、Mm-hmm. This harkens back to the Preston Sturges films,、uh, the Hollywood films of the 30s and 40s, where you had you were talking about archetypes before these classic Hollywood character tropes.、Yeah. You have a hero. Who is innocent, just arrived in the city, 
kind of maybe a little dopey too, you know, but certainly not worldly. But that innocence belies something. There's more to him than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. That's the hero. The villain is dastardly and is typically presented as that all-knowing figure crunching on a cigar. Uh Paul Newman plays that part um, as Sidney Musburger. The love interest in this case, again, we're talking about 30s, 40s Hollywood standard film. You know what this is. A fast-talking career gal, you know? (laughs) And she talks like this, and she talks really fast, and there's a a guy that she works with named Smitty, and it's it's got all of that, right? Uh, So the sets, the characters, the faces in this film are all outsized, and so you need music to match that. Mm-hmm. And this is where the Cohn brothers and Carter Burwell, who, who did the, the accompanying score, turned to classical music. Okay. Uh, and they use uh, a couple of famous compositions by Aram Khachaturian. Okay. Khachaturian uh, was one of the most celebrated 20th century Russian composers. The yeah. name may not be familiar to you. I've, I've heard the name, but we've never actually done anything on the show about him. He's mostly remembered for a couple of ballets. Uh, Guyana, which is a four-act ballet, and I may have mispronounced that slightly, uh, which he composed in 1942, and it tells the story of an Armenian woman who discovers her husband's engaged in treason. Uh, it had a really nationalist quality to it when it was first uh, put forward, but, but the, when it was first composed. The plot, though, was changed a number of times over the years to sort of de-emphasize that and focus on the romance instead. But but the work that came out of Guyana that's most remembered and which the Coen brothers use in Hudsucker is Cachaturian's Saber Dance. Okay. Now, Saber Dance is this kinetic, fast-moving, like two, three-minute-long dance. You will know it instantly when you hear it. In fact, I, I can just sort of briefly hum it here. That's saber dance. So saber dance has been used in popular culture in lots of different contexts. Other than Hudsucker Proxy, The Simpsons used it in an episode. If you remember when Grandpa Simpson falls asleep watching the kids, Bart steals his teeth and he attaches his teeth to the ceiling fan and he's flying around. That's the music that's playing. Nice. The Cohen brothers use it in this in a really interesting sequence. Our, our hero, Norval Barnes, played by Tim Robbins, uh, has an invention. Okay. He's been carrying around the design for this invention everywhere yeah. he goes, and he, he pulls it out anytime he wants to impress somebody about this great idea he has. And what he has is a piece of paper that has a circle on it. That's it. <laughs> and, he, and, and he'll look at you with it and say, you know, for kids. <laughs> and people... You know, of course, look at him. What is wrong with this guy? Well, it turns out that his idea, this piece of paper, is actually the hula hoop. So in our fantasy, he is the creator of the hula hoop. Okay. Well, at first, the hula hoop, it doesn't sell in stores because people don't know what to make of this plastic ringed thingamabob. Yeah. Right? Well, that's until a child comes across one or... As it sort of plays out in the scene, the hula hoop finds the child. Uh-huh. It, it, basically, the store owner, he tosses out all these hula hoops he can't sell, and one of them starts rolling down the street and around the corner, and be, because right. as hula hoops are wont to do, sure. and finds its way to a child who figures out how to use it. Okay. What happens is uh, they start with music from the ballet Spartacus, uh, th- this, this uh, one section, that's a little lesser-known section, 
of that ballet. Yeah. And then they transition into the saber dance. And the saber dance hits at a precise moment when the kid, surrounded by the hula hoop, he starts to, to use the hula hoop in a yeah. traditional way, and then he figures out really how to use it. And then all these kids show up that have just been let out of school wearing their Davy Crockett hats and everything. They all, they all come across this kid who's hula hooping, and suddenly he starts hula hooping around his neck. <laughs> And they're like totally baffled by this, blown away by it. And that's when Saberdance hits, and they all run off into the store to buy their hula hoops. Nice. Wasn't this also used in Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Almost certainly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great piece. I've never known what that was called before. I mentioned Spartacus. Yeah. So Spartacus was composed in 1954 Mm -hmm. and then was staged a couple years later. It tells the story of the leader of the Roman slave uprising. Uh, It received the Lenin Prize for composition in 1954. Its most famous movement is also used and used extensively in the Hudsucker Proxy. It's the Adagio of Spartacus and Phrygia. And it follows Spartacus who rescues this slave uh, woman. And it's this very romantic piece that follows their escape. Cacheturian arranged this and other music from the ballet for four orchestral suites, the adagios in the second suite. uh, And then the Coen brothers use this music as sort of romantic shorthand. It has this slow and dramatic buildup. And and you know when you sort of reach the apex in the music that our two lovers, Jennifer Jason Lee and Tim Robbins, Norville and, and Amy Archer, through whatever conflict they've been through, they're going to come together in that Hollywood standard film classic moment where they embrace and kiss. It's yeah. perfect. And and you'll hear that when, when we get to that, that moment okay. in the music. So this is the very beginning of it. And at this very beginning, they use at the very beginning of the film. And they've got this great uh, voiceover by actor Bill Cobbs, uh-huh. where he's talking about, you know, 1955, and he tells this whole story, sort of sets you up for what's going to happen. Yeah. And again, even this part is sort of shorthand for, this is going to be a fantasy. There's, there's, this yeah. is not all entirely real, but there's a great story here. This music it just lends itself so easily to to use in a movie it's so cinematic you can, sounding you can see the falling snow yeah falling gently on new york yeah. and the giant clock of hudsucker industries at the top of the building uh-huh. the the arm of the clock is moving around so great and when was do you know when the this was written the music this was uh, again composed in 1954 okay right you said yeah. that okay His very romantic, like like sort of textbook romantic. Yeah, you know. I love this yeah. piece. I love this piece. Later in the film, mm-hmm. the adagio from Spartacus is used again to bring us to this romantic conclusion. 
what's happened in the film, I don't want to give too much away because I really want people to, to see this movie, uh-huh. but our hero, Norval Barnes, has risen to the presidency of Hudsucker Industries and then has fallen into despair, but gets a second chance. Okay. And then he runs off to find Jennifer Jason Lee's Amy Archer, uh, the love interest. Yeah. And the two of them are trying to find one another, and this is New Year's Eve. It's about to become a new year, 1955. Yeah. Uh, and the two find each other on the streets of New York, and they embrace just as the music swells to a great crescendo. Yeah, so they got the Coen brothers got a lot of mileage out of this one piece of music. Absolutely, absolutely. Huh. And it fits so beautifully within the story that they're telling that is this, it's, it's a fantasy tale and the mm-hmm. music is a fantasy and everything about it is melodramatic and, yeah. and, and just reeks of old Hollywood, but in right. the best possible way. Nice. All right, so now we're starting to get the sense of yeah. the, the buildup. They're trying to find one another in New York. Yeah. Yeah. He goes running off to find her in the beatnik bar. She comes out of the beatnik bar. They, Or I guess they find themselves in this beatnik bar. Mm-hmm. And then they come together. And here comes the big embrace. That's great. And that great call and response between the strings and the horn. Yeah. It's it's very melodramatic. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. It's got so so much... movie music that was used in the in the 50s and early 60s was had this sound yes. this this uh, very sort of warm string sound to yeah, it yeah and it all has that that feeling that well, I think the Coen brothers were going for yeah and and, and uh, back in those days of course you were still in the the days of the the, the big studios uh-huh. and they had their own orchestras yeah. and and you know they would do these like big full lush scores yeah yeah. Love it. Yeah, so Cachaturian was right around that yeah. time period. All right. So, Craig, unfortunately, we have talked so much that we've run out of time. We've only covered uh, 1984 through 1994 in this episode, unbelievably. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so I, I think this is going to necessitate a part two. Wow. Yeah. I, I feel honored. This, this is only um, the second show that we've had to do a part two of. I don't know what that says about you. It's, feel- <laughs> it says that I ramble on and you are too polite to tell me, Craig, shut up. Let's move on. <laughs> it also says that this music is amazing and we both love the Coen brothers and so we're just going for it. I Absolutely. Think. Yeah. Um, so we haven't gotten to Fargo. We haven't gotten to Oh Brother Where Art Thou. So many great films still to go. And uh, this will also mean that in our next episode, we will talk a little bit about T-Bone Burnett and uh, his collaboration with the Coen brothers. Can't wait. 
All right, everybody, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom. You'll find links to all of our social media there. Make sure to follow us with slavish devotion. Slavish devotion, that is hard to say. Email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Subscribe to rate us and review us on iTunes. Thanks today to audio producer Todd Fink. Holslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to Mark DeClaudio for his assistance and his piercing hula hoop eyes. Thanks to Craig Cohen for being on the show today. Thanks to me for saying words. Thanks to you for being here. And why don't we freeze time, just like in that scene in the Hudsucker Proxy where uh, Norval Barnes is frozen there in the air, and then the, and then the guy who's the angel Charles Durning with the ukulele. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna freeze this episode just like that in midair. Uh, you can pick up and hear all about the other more recent films of the Coen Brothers in part two of our Coen Brothers Extravaganza. Love that tune. How you doing, kid? Mr. Hudsucker? <laughs>